Well, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. We are continuing our study of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah by looking at uh, that chapter this week. And we're not going to read the whole chapter. Uh, as much of it is composed of lists of names that, on the whole, will not mean much to most of us. And honestly, I don't think you want to hear me fumble through trying to pronounce all the Hebrew names here. Uh, although, if you were with us on Wednesday night, you were probably impressed with Pastor Chris as he uh, read through the names of the men who stood on the platform with Ezra. Uh, he went through it really quickly and got them all right. Uh, chapter 10 re- represents a response of the people to the reminder of their and their ancestors' history of struggling with the call of God upon them to be his people. And so here we shall see they renew their commitment to not merely occupy the promised land, but to properly live in the land that was promised to them as a consequence of God's covenant with them and their forefathers. So we will begin reading at the end of chapter 9 with verse 39, uh, and then we'll pick up later in uh, chapter 10, verses 28 through 39. It should be up on the screen. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. I think it's going to be the NIV up there. But if you're able, please rise for the reading of God's Word. It says, verse verse 38 of chapter 9, In view of all this... This is the people talking. We are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. And then skipping down to verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers and singers and temple servants, along with their wives, sons and daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God, join with join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, ordinances and statutes of the Lord our God. We will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. When the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and will cancel every debt. We will impose the following commands on ourselves. To give an eighth of an ounce of silver yearly for the service of the house of our God, the bread displayed before the Lord, the daily grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath and new moon offerings, the appointed festivals, the holy things, the sin offerings to atone for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We have cast lots among the priests, Levites, and people for the donation of wood by our ancestral families at the appointed times each year. They are to bring the wood to our God's house to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We will bring the first fruits of our land and of every fruit tree to the Lord's house year by year. We will also bring the firstborn of our sons and our livestock as prescribed by the law. And we will bring the firstborn of our herds and flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who serve in our God's house. We will bring a loaf from our first batch of dough to the priests at the storerooms of the house of our God. We will also bring the first fruits of our grain offerings of every fruit tree and of the new wine and fresh oil. 
A tenth of our land's produce belongs to the Levites, for the Levites are to collect the one-tenth offering in all our agricultural towns. A priest from Aaron's descendants is to accompany the Levites when they collect a tenth, and the Levites are to take a tenth of this offering to the storerooms of the treasury in the house of our God. For the Israelites and the Levites are to bring the contributions of grain, new wine, and fresh oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are kept and where the priests who minister are, along with the gatekeepers and singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, in chapter 9, verse 38, we saw that the people made a binding agreement. The Hebrew word for agreement here is not the word typically used for covenant or contract, which is berit. That would be the Hebrew word for covenant. Instead, the word, years, the word used here, amana, is etymologically, that means it's, it's tied to the Hebrew word for faithfulness. And that's the same root word used in reference to Abraham back in 9-8, verse 8 of chapter 9, as we read last week. And interestingly, it is the only place in the Old Testament where amana is used as a synonym for berit. Now, you might be saying, okay, thanks for the Hebrew lesson, John. Why is this important, or is it? Well, let me say this. At first blush, it seems that the people are here contrasting their attitudes at this time with the past histories of the generations recounted following God's covenant with Abraham that we looked at last week, where the people had been oftentimes unfaithful. They had sinned. They had turned their backs on the Lord and followed after the gods of their pagan neighbors. And they are here then expressing their intent to act in accord with the covenant as Abraham had done as listed in 9.8. So the use of amana instead of berit, I think, is a deliberate move to tie their intentions for the future with the actions of Abraham in the past. Now, on your outline, you see there it says a thing of issues of dating and scholarship. This is just for your information. Many scholars think that chapter 10 and probably chapter 8 were written after the events of chapters 11 through 13 of Nehemiah for a number of reasons. And the most obvious being, spoiler alert, (laughs) that the people failed at most of the things promised here in chapter 10. Nehemiah and Ezra had to enforce fidelity of the covenant. They also include, these, ch- these chapters also include numerous references to the temple operations, which seems to presuppose an already running temple program, which was not yet underway. Thus, many think the chapters, that chapters 9 and 10 were found in the temple archives and added to the final product of Nehemiah by a later editor. But just so long as this was done so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we really shouldn't have any problems with this suggestion. Now, if you've glanced through the chapter, you probably noticed at the beginning, and I mentioned this, at the beginning of the chapter, we're given a list of persons who agreed to the document. Long list of names, right? Many different names. 
Now, again, there's much discussion among scholars regarding the authorship, the dating, the transmission of this section. What does all this mean? Now, we don't have time to get into the minutia of the names, but you should know that the list includes the names of both individuals and of families. And this is somewhat odd. It's, it doesn't normally uh, appear this way in the Old Testament. So it was somewhat odd. And you should also know that the lists here in, uh, in chapter 10 are different from lists elsewhere in both Ezra and Nehemiah. And so this has caused scholars a number of questions about these names. Now, one explanation for the reference to both specific, that is personal, and family names, is that those named personally were individuals of prominence due to age, wealth, or piety. And the author wanted the community to know that these people of stature had signed on to this agreement. Another explanation is that it could have been the case that there was disagreement among leaders in some families. Perhaps some didn't want to have their family name affixed to the document for whatever reason, right? Sometimes people are skittish about signing their name to anything. And so only the names of the representative individuals were recorded. Now, the differences in the names on the list between this chapter and other chapters elsewhere in Ezra and Nehemiah can be accounted for as well most likely due to new families arriving from exile after the restoration work was already underway. That is, if the contents of chapter 10 were written later than the rest of the book, and the agreement was made later than at least some of the events recorded in Nehemiah 13, then we should expect some new names to appear in the list in chapter 10. Right? As you can imagine, after restoration work had progressed, people were returning to the land, people were establishing themselves in the land, word would have gone back to Babylon to those not maybe as adventurous as those who came early on, those who stayed behind, in other words, prompting them to emigrate to Israel. Now, in my mind, these questions are interesting, but you might agree with me, they're not terribly important. What is important is the fact that the persons from every facet of Israelite society were included in the agreement across the board. And the structure of the list points to this. Right? So at risk of oversimplification, and you can see in your, uh, in your bulletin in the outline, uh, I've laid out the different groups represented. So first we have political leadership, right? We have Nehemiah in verse 1. Then we have the temple ministers in verses, uh, second part of verse 1 through verse 8, right? These are the priests who would actually serve in the temple worship. Then we have temple workers. Uh, these are the Levites who largely work in the background of the temple. After that, we have community leaders, perhaps business and civic leaders in verses 14 through 27. And last, we have the general laity or just the, the people in general in verses 28 and 29. So if we were to translate this into our context here at Meadowbrook Baptist Church, we could see this as an instance where maybe the... At first, the senior pastor signs on, then maybe the pastoral staff and trustees, committee members, deacons, Sunday school leaders, and other leaders as well, and then the congregation as a whole. As Pastor Chris noted last week and previously, this all ties into the concept of a community of faith that is characterized by unity of spirit, unity of focus, unity of faith. All in Christ. And this leads to the first major point. The people of God are unified in their submission to his lordship. So first there, I have preparations and planning. 
in order for the people of Israel to once again function in the promised land as the people of God, several things had to happen. And some of this has already been covered in previous weeks. Right? Number one, most obviously they had to be allowed to return. And God in his providence and grace had ensured this would happen even at the decree of a pagan king. Secondly, they had to establish a game plan for reclamation of the land and restoration of a community. Right? In other words, they had to set up the things you need to be a nation. A government structure, security apparatus, economic development, living quarters, provisions, and the like. Right? Third, they had to remember, and this is probably should have been number one, but they had to remember the covenant God made with Abraham and later with the people through the mediation of Moses. Right, and, and that would rekindle their identity as a separated people, as a nation. Fourth, they needed a community-wide commitment to the Lord. Community-wide. So, number two, the centrality of God's word. In both of these last two, right, in the idea of them remembering the covenant God made with Abraham and the community-wide commitment, the word of God was central. Recall that Ezra read the scripture to the people in a special public assembly, complete with a dedicated ceremonial platform and lectern built for the occasion. That was in uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Recall also that the people were told they studied the scripture and that when they discovered a requirement or a festival that they had neglected, they immediately set forth to rectify the oversight. That's in chapter 8, verses 13 and following. This implies, then, a concerted effort to familiarize themselves with the Scripture, to study the Scripture in order to know what it means, to reflect upon the Scripture in order to properly apply its teachings to their lives, and to believe the Scripture in order to conform their actions and their thoughts to its truth, right? To the truth, Notice quickly that the Israelites separated themselves from the other peoples, and it says in in verse 28, quote, for the sake of the law of God, in, in chapter 10, verse 28. Increasingly then, to be faithful Christians is to be a person at odds with the culture. Even in the so-called Bible belt here, Christianity is becoming countercultural. As one commentator noted, he said separation from the neighboring peoples was important to maintain the distinctive beliefs and ethical principles of the community. And then he says this, God still wants his people to be separate by repudiating values and beliefs that are contrary to his will. We must take seriously the scriptural emphasis on separation without following, falling into an isolationist situation. In other words, don't separate ourselves so much that we're cut off from the world. But the other danger is to accommodate the world so much that we fall into a syncretism that loses our distinctively Christian way of thinking and acting. Well, how do we do this? Well, like this. If we saturate it, if we saturate our minds with God's Word, if we believe what God's Word teaches about reality, about morality, about meaning and truth, we will find ourselves in disagreement or at odds with the prevailing views of those in our culture. We just will. What is concerning to me is that there are many churches, many Christians who don't seem to see this. But the messages our culture is proclaiming are often directly opposed to biblical truth. And so we have a decision to make. We need to decide if we are going to be followers of God or followers of the culture. 
believers in God's word or believers in the socially or politically correct message. Proclaimers of the gospel of Christ or proclaimers of the gospel of pluralism and relativism. Right? Make no mistake about it. We have a choice to make. And if we fail to see that fact, in some ways, we've already made it. All right, third, I have some noteworthy points, right? I wanted to highlight a few other things to notice here. Number one, I've already sort of said this, but all were participants, right? All the people were involved, not just the family representatives and not just the men. We're told women, children. In fact, in verse 28 again, it says, all who were able to understand, all who were able to understand. Here we have, a, and it says this several times, by the way, in Ezra and Nehemiah. Here we have a hint of the notion of what is often referred to as the doctrine of the age of accountability. You may have heard this before. This is the notion that there comes a time when an individual matures enough emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually to be accountable to God for his or her own faith. And prior to that, God's grace preserves them in some way. Now, again, we don't have time to explore that particular doctrine here in detail, but it is at least interesting to note that it, it, that it is those who are able to understand who have to make the choice about who they're going to follow. Are they going to follow after God? Or are they going to be faithful? And this can be of solace to those who have loved ones who may not be able to respond in faith due to developmental issues. They are held, the scripture suggests, they are held in God's gracious hands. Now, of course, the wider point for us here is uh, is that if we are able to understand, if you're able to understand what I am saying right now, assuming you're awake, uh, then you have a responsibility to respond to God's call in your life, a responsibility to study and follow his word. So notice also the requirement of obedience. Right, Obedience is required in verse 29. The people properly understood that to be part of the community of faith requires more than mere intellectual assent to a list of statements or propositions or doctrines, though having right belief is, of course, important to our salvation and the life of faith. It's become fashionable in recent years, and, and I'm old, so by recent I mean the last 10 or 20 years, <laughs> to say that all that matters is my relationship with Christ and by saying that, some people mean that to uh, mean it to serve as a way of excusing blatant sin in their lives, right? They'll say things like this: "Don't judge me for sleeping with my girlfriend. I know God loves me and accepts me for who I am, and I love Jesus. So mind your own business, right? I'm good with God. Me and God, we're like this, right?" We hear people say these sorts of things all the time, sometimes on television, sometimes in the movies, with the person calling on the other to holiness presented as the villain. But Jesus said repeatedly, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. The fact of the matter is that true saving faith results in obedience. The Israelites knew that here. If you really believe God's word, you will purpose to follow its teachings. If you don't purpose to follow its teachings, you probably don't believe what it says. And again, this isn't to say that you won't ever fail. But it is to say that one it isn't to say that one must live sinlessly perfect. It is to say, though, that if you believe God, then you're going to seek to follow his way. Third, the people wrote out their commitment, right? They wrote out their commitment to God. There's something special about writing things out, about writing down our feelings, putting our commitments to paper with pen. 
I did a little research on this this week. There's a, there's a growing body of literature studying the psychological effects of affixing, affixing one's signature to a document. It seems to tie our self-identity to the nature of whatever it is that we're signing. So by taking the step to write out their commitment and to affix, uh, affix their seals, or in today's parlance, right, to put your signature, the people added a psychological driver to their commitment. In effect, to fail to fulfill the obligation is to lose part of one's identity. We feel much more strongly obliged to follow through when we write out and sign our promises. This is why sometimes professional counselors will ask their clients to write out and sign plans of action to alter behavior and hopefully develop new healthy habits. So today I have a practical exercise for us. Right On your bulletin, there is a place for each of us to write down one action we will commit to taking that will benefit our spiritual lives. Um, and I was going to do this in here, but I don't think we have time. I was going to say every head bowed, every head, nobody looking around. But I want you to do this, right? Take your bulletin home with you. Write out a commitment in that section that says my commitment. Write it down and keep it in your Bible. And then next week, pull it out and see how did you do, right? How did you do? Now, it's worth pointing out that the specific promises the people make are related to are related to the law, but are not exacting in detail with respect to the law. And you could see this if you were to compare the promise they made with the Old Testament, the the earlier references in Deuteronomy and in Exodus and in Leviticus uh, to the, the, the rules they make. And this leads us to the second major point. The people of God will be both faithful to God's word, but also sensitive to the Spirit's leading. Some scholars believe that the solemn promises made here represent something like the beginnings of a type of rabbinical interpretation of the scripture that ultimately resulted in rabbinic commentary uh, on the Bible found in works like the Mishnah and the Talmud, if you've heard of those before. The promises made represent applications of biblical principles uh, that are broad rules. For example, Moses forbid intermarriage with the Canaanites because of the danger of apostasy, right, following after their gods in Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7. But here the people simply promised to not intermarry even though sometimes it was permissible, for example, with Ruth. Similarly, the Sabbath law was originally pretty generic. In fact, it was so much generic that Moses had to inquire of God regarding its application to a situation where a person was picking up sticks on the Sabbath. You may remember that. Here, yet here, the people apply the Sabbath law to buying and selling from foreigners. And they codify the Jubilee year requirement, the every seven years and the 50 years, uh, for the whole nation, even though many scholars believe it may have originally been celebrated at different times in different regions of Israel. The lesson for us here has to do with our understanding of the scripture and how we interpret and apply it. And that's what those fancy uh, words are there. I have a somewhat technical term on the outline, exegesis. It's just a, a fancy way of referring to the science of interpretation where we read, when we read a document, we find meaning in the, in the text itself. We draw out, right, X out of the words of the text, its true meaning. The idea here is that the meaning of a biblical passage is to be found in the words that God inspired the author to write. 
We do not give the text meaning. We don't create our own meaning. But the meaning is found in the words spoken by God and in the intent God had by inspiring the prophets to speak and write those words down. But this is not to say that there can only be one application of a text. Rather, we engage in exegesis, Bible interpretation, to determine the meaning of the text And then we ask the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds, give us understanding so that we may see how to apply the teaching from the meaning to our lives, to our families, to our jobs, to our homes, and yes, even our church. What we see here then is the application of the text to the specific situation of the Israelites who had returned from Babylonian captivity in the 5th century B.C., We see them taking the principles spoken through Moses and others and applying those principles in some ways that they're, that that are a little more restrictive, but wholly appropriate to their situations, their contexts, their needs, but still in ways that were faithful to the meaning and spirit of the text. We too must be diligent in properly interpreting the text, that's why we have Sunday school, for example, listening to the Holy Spirit as he leads us to apply it to ourselves and sensitive to the fact that it may not always apply the same way to all people in all situations. The key is faithfulness to the text and sensitivity to the Spirit. Well, the focus on holiness and worship. In verses 32 through 39, the people set terms for various needs, various needs of the temple worship. Right? The establishment of the requirement of a temple text, which had, it did have precedent in Exodus 30, but here is when they really set it as a requirement. This was new with the return from exile. The move to a currency-based economy from a barter or trade approach meant that monies had to be required. The establishment of procedures for the acquisition of wood for the temple was probably tied to the command to keep the flame alight in the tabernacle and the temple. But there wasn't, prior to this, any explicit command for someone to provide the wood. In this case, it was a practical matter that made sense to address. And this, again, is an example of my point about being sensitive to the spirit. We also see various uses of tithes addressed here, how the tithes were to be used, the administration of the Levites' tithe, and the like. Now, some of you probably thought I was going to preach a sermon on the tithe. And, of course, it is important to give so that the various ministries of the church may proceed. But what we see here is that the community had to decide how to best use the funds provided for worship with the emphasis being, and this is the important point, the emphasis being upon ensuring that the people engaged in worship that was God-honoring was faithful to the revelation given them in the Scripture. Right. The key to all of this is to recognize the holy nature of worship, of the Almighty Right? We enter into the presence of the Almighty when we're gathered to worship. It's a time for us to listen to His voice. It's a time for us to make holy commitment to Him. A commitment that goes with us as we leave through the doors. Well, we've had an opportunity for holy commitment already. Right. I hope you took a moment or will take a moment to renew your own commitment to God and to put something practical down on paper. We've had opportunity to participate in public commitments to God through, uh, we're going to have through baptism in the second service, through missions reports 
And now we are about to participate in another important and holy commitment to God, both individually and as a worshiping community, as the body of Christ, as we partake in Holy Communion. What we're doing in Holy Communion is proclaiming our unity with one another, our unity with Christ, our faith in His sacrificial death on our behalf, and our uh, our looking forward to His return and our uh, our uh, unity with Him in the renewed kingdom. And at this time, I'll invite Pastor Chris to come up and lead us.